May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In John's Gospel, Christ has just entered Jerusalem to mingle delight and curiosity. He has become, in fact, something of a tourist attraction. Some Greeks who consider themselves to be the arbiters of all things interesting have shown up wanting to have a look in. Philip has gone to Andrew and so on and so on, almost like getting passed from political aid to political aid on your way to see the president. The atmosphere feels a little breathless, a little heady. Everyone's waiting for what will happen next. And of course, as is natural when the stakes are so high, everyone has very fixed ideas in their heads about what will happen next and the specific part in the drama that they personally will play. Jesus isn't having any of it, of course. The chapter began with Mary's anointing of Christ with perfume and spices that surely must have been meant originally for her brother's body. Mary has just watched Lazarus, laid him out, and put him in the ground. She anoints Christ very consciously, very knowingly. There will be new life, but first the old enemy must be faced, the ruler of this world driven out, Christ must die. Death and the new life, light and darkness, are inextricably linked in these chapters. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness will not overtake you. It is an interesting perspective from which to consider life and death, the life cycle of a grain of wheat, imagining it hard and narrow and enclosed and twisted in on itself as Christ's rather unexpected definition of what we usually think of as life. By that founding premise, death and the new life occur at the same moment. The dissolution of the old body makes possible the bursting into life of the new. And it must make you ask yourself what it must feel like from the perspective of the seed. Does it have any idea of the new life that's buried at the core of it? The new life, which is the whole reason a farmer has preserved it so tenderly all this time, instead of grinding it into bread and eating it? Or does it have its own ideas about what a nice grain of wheat it is? How nice it would be if it could just stay that way? It's not hurting anyone. Does it really have to be planted? Does it really have to suffer? Does it really have to die? I am a diehard fan of the podcast Radiolab, and on an episode a while back, they described how one of the great black box mysteries in biology remains the question of what happens when butterflies and moths undergo metamorphosis. Inside the chrysalis, the entire body of the fat little caterpillar dissolves and breaks down. It's just goo in there. How does it reconstitute, resurrect itself as the butterfly? We're still learning about these things, but one of the things scientists have discovered is that not only does the biological matter of the caterpillar carry forward into the changed, reconstituted butterfly, but even more fascinatingly, that inside the body of the caterpillar, 
tucked up along its back, already exist some of the adult parts of the future butterfly that is to come. Little translucent wing structures, antenna, legs, all rolled up like an umbrella. The caterpillar doesn't know that those future body parts are already there in its own body or how they will come into their own. Indeed, they won't and can't come into their own until the moment that the rest of the body of the caterpillar dissolves. Our verse from John today forms the epigraph to one of the greatest religious novels ever written, Dostoevsky's The Brother Karam- Brothers Karamazov. I say one of the greatest religious novels ever written, but in fact, Dostoevsky's faith and the question of what faith and religion is are, like all great works, much harder to understand and to pin down in this novel than you might imagine. There is no easy moral. Dostoevsky himself struggled with doubt for much of his life. He was not isolated from many of the questions that his age was posing, And in particular, in his youth, he found the question of bodily resurrection to be deeply troubling. Initially sentenced to death by Tsar Nicholas for political radicalism, the sentence was commuted to years of hard labor in Siberia. In the solitude of prison, however, Dostoevsky was given a copy of the Gospels, and in particular, the Gospel of John, with all its paradoxes, became the heart of what he would later think of as his real religious conversion. From ear on out, his questions, those most famously expressed in the debate with the Grand Inquisitor in the Brothers K, are questions not of doubt, but really moral questions from the inside of faith. How can an omnipotent God allow unjust suffering? If all of creation could exist in eternal beatitude at the cost of one small creature's being tortured to death. Would that torture be justified? The saint at the heart of Dostoevsky's novel is Father Zosima, whose faith is, for lack of a better word, earthy, who entreats his young disciple Alyosha to kiss the earth, not to stay within the monastery, but to live in it, in the world, as if he were a monk. Alyosha sits with Zosima at his deathbed, and as his mentor passes away, Alyosha feels the full conviction of God's mercy. And this is a quote. Alyosha stood gazing, and suddenly, as if he had been cut down, threw himself to the earth. He did not know why he was embracing it. He did not try to understand why he longed so irresistibly to kiss it, to kiss all of it. But he was kissing it, weeping, sobbing, and watering it with his tears, and he vowed ecstatically to love it, to love it unto ages of ages. Water the earth with the tears of your joy and love those tears, rang in his soul. What was he weeping for? Oh, in his rapture he wept even for the stars that shone on him from the abyss, and he was not ashamed of this ecstasy. It was as if threads from all those innumerable worlds of God all came together in his soul, and it was trembling all over, touching those other worlds. He wanted to forgive everyone and for everything, and to ask forgiveness, oh, not for himself, but for all and for everything, as others are asking for me, rang again in his soul. Three days later, he left the monastery, 
which was also in accordance with the words of his late elder, who had bidden him to sojourn in the world. The Brothers K is a story of a very dysfunctional family, and both those threads are held together throughout the novel. The story of the crime and the story of the family. The suffering and the interconnected nature of all lives caught up in that suffering. The earth into which the seed, every seed, must fall so that it might be transformed is our shared fate and the common, shared, interconnected nature of human suffering that is born by Christ and redeemed by Christ. Hasn't he died? Eustace asks of Aslan about the suddenly resurrected Caspian at the end of the silver chair. And Aslan answers a little impishly, he has died. Most people have, you know. Even I have. There are very few who haven't. We haven't the foggiest idea of what we will be. The suffering, the dying, the being put in the ground against our will is much, much clearer to us little grains of wheat. We don't have to like it. Christ did not. But our definition of fruitful, our best laid plans of world domination, are not God's definition, which involves metamorphosis, which involves death. So that the new life which we never anticipated, that we have been carrying around with us all this time, may finally get a chance to grow.